Hello, welcome to the Daily Journal podcast. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host, and we're delighted that you've joined us for this podcast. If you would like CLE credit for listening to this, it is very easy to obtain. If you go to dailyjournal.com, the website dailyjournal.com, you will see both this podcast, others, older podcasts as well, and also CLE tests connected to this podcast. And by electronically taking the CLE test and submitting it to the Daily Journal, you may be able to obtain the one hour of CLE credit for this podcast. This is one of two podcasts that we are doing and will make public and post simultaneously and involves one of the most now thought about and important legal issues of the day, business interruption insurance in the COVID-19 crisis. What we've done is ask the leading counsel, the leading lawyers on both sides, leading lawyers for policyholders and plaintiffs, who will hear in this hour, and the leading lawyers for insurers and defendants, who will hear in the second hour that is separately posted, so that all of you who are involved in this issue can get a great understanding of the arguments and issues that will be presented by the best lawyers handling these cases. Today, we're very pleased to have Michael Bedart and Ricardo Echeverria of Chernoff, Bedart, and and Echeverria. Uh, They are part of a law firm uh, led by their senior partner, Bill Chernoff, and I know none of them will object to my putting it that way, that basically have created, it's very rare for lawyers to have created and developed a major area of law. And it is because of the work that Chernoff, Bedart, and Echeverria have done in this area that, for example, bad faith in insurance cases has developed the way it has in California. So they have been on the cutting edge of insurance law and especially areas which they themselves have developed. I think, and I don't want you blushing over the phone, but I think it's fair to say that there are whole areas of insurance law, including especially bad faith, that would not have the same shape and scope that they have today, uh, but for the work that, that you have done. So we're going to talk today about the plaintiffs and policyholders perspective. And I'd like to start out, we're dealing with this enormous issue, a new area, clients that are badly hurt. I know that you are representing restaurants in this, one one very well-known one in, in particular. Mike, when, when a, this kind of case comes in and the client walks through the door and you have this kind of problem, given your experience litigating these issues, What's your mindset? What goes through your mind? What problems do you think you'll face? How do you approach handling this kind of major case in this kind of significant issue? First of all, Howard, before I answer that, let me thank you for your generous remarks and our pleasure to be with you because we know that you're doing this the way it should be done and having both sides of the issue covered, I think is very important. The first thing that you know we're looking at is that, like any other contingency fee law firm, is can we win the case? And any lawyer on either side of these issues that says that it's absolutely clear and well established and not subject to any doubt or controversy, I think is overstating it by far. Uh, these are very, very thorny issues. Um, there's certainly a, a substantial variation between some of the nuances in, in the policies, but also there are certain 
issues that are weaving through all of these cases that we've seen thus far and from all the things you read. And, and because the coverage issues which we're going to be going through with you today are so uh, challenging and some of them uh, uncharted waters, um, we as a contingency fee firm, unfortunately, have to be very careful in making sure that we are looking at cases that have enough economic damages uh, at play to make the work that's going to be required for years uh, worthwhile, both for the client uh, and for us. And when you think about it, there are so many, literally, I would say, millions of policies out there uh, that perhaps are implicated, and whether it's a, a small business person who has uh, a $25,000 a month claim or uh, a larger business that has a $50 million a month claim, the coverage issue and the work involved in properly presenting that coverage issue is going to be the same. So unfortunately, once again, uh, people with less money at stake and people with the smaller businesses may not be able to get uh, attention to their cases as much as all of us would like. That's that, the one sad practical reality. That's a you know that's such a critical comment because in reality, in terms of life, the owner of a relatively small restaurant that may have had a fifty or a hundred thousand dollars in losses, those losses may impact that person's life as much as a much larger loss for a larger organization able to withstand it. But it may be that as the courts interpret these issues and clarify some of the ambiguities, that companies, insurance companies will respond differently to small claims because of the issues that involve. So let's start, since we're dealing with business interruption insurance, let's start with the basics. Ricardo, what, what is business interruption insurance? Well, as the name implies, it's coverage, insurance coverage that uh, is triggered when your business has suffered uh, an interruption to its normal business activities. And now that's a very oversimplified explanation because pretty much every business has been interrupted um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the issues really become, what are the circumstances that are triggering the business interruption? That's really where the coverage analysis will come into play and things that we're going to talk about because just because the business has been interrupted, which frankly every business has been interrupted, will not automatically mean that there's coverage for it. Uh, you have to look at what are the circumstances that are causing the interruption what is the nature of the business becomes important. What are the nature of the losses that the business has suffered becomes important as we get through some of the issues. So um, in general, uh, it's exactly as the name implies. It's insurance coverage to protect the business when their normal uh, operations have been interrupted, and, um, and it's designed to compensate those businesses for the, the loss of earnings and profits and extra expenses they've incurred that they would otherwise have been able to, um, to to have if it wasn't for the interruption. So that's in general what business interruption is. Yeah, and it's important. You know, people are talking about this issue broadly, business interruption, because of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, there can be interruption for many different reasons, as you said, simply the existence 
of the pandemic could cause an interruption. The requiring people to stay at home could indirectly affect business. Orders that non-essential businesses essentially close could affect the coverage. So we look at the policy and what, what is the key, what is the key part of the policy, the at risk, the stated risk policy? What provision, Mike, do we look at to determine whether there's coverage? That leads to, I think, the very beginning of the process of analyzing coverage, and that is to understand the difference between so-called all-risk, sometimes referred to as open-peril insurance coverage on one hand, and so-called stated-peril coverage on the other. Stated peril and virtually, well, first of all, all of the policies we've seen in this setting so far, and we've looked at a lot of them, and we're looking at a lot of them, comprehensive general liability coverages are typically written on an all-risk basis. And you just look to the policy, and you'll see there'll be those words will appear in the policy, all risk of physical loss or damage. So uh, stated peril coverage is much narrower narrower in its nature. And the only things that are covered are those which are explicitly set forth in a grant of coverage naming the perils. Whereas by contrast, all risk coverage, and this cannot be overstated, and this is fundamental to to the whole the whole analysis of the coverage. Every single peril that you can think of is covered, except for what is specifically excluded from coverage. So when you really want to find out what is quote-unquote covered in an all-risk policy, it's really uh, more a question of what's excluded, because that you have to take away the coverage by way of an exclusion, otherwise it's covered. In fact, in a real life setting, just this last week, I saw a letter written by an insurance company adjuster saying words to the effect, well, I understand, you know, uh, it's all risk coverage, but not all imaginable risks are covered. And that's not true. All imaginable risks are covered, except for what's specifically excluded, clearly and unambiguously excluded, applying the rules of construction that we'll talk about. Well, what you're mentioning, you know, in terms of the response, leads to the question, I mean, insurance policies, as I think almost all legal documents, are often not written in the clearest, the most easily understandable language. So are there rules of interpretation in the case of ambiguity, as in your case of all risk, rules of interpretation that the courts use and how to interpret the insurance policy? Yeah, there are rules of interpretation, and they're very, very important rules. And without them, you can't do the analysis. And But I guess it bears mentioning for anybody that's going to be arguing to a court the rules of interpretation is to understand and to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, why do they exist in the first instance? And it really goes back to the foundation for the tort of breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. 
The reason that that tort remedy exists in the first instance is because the courts came to recognize that it's the nature of the relationship and the fact that it's a special relationship because it's a special product, unlike any other product that people are paying good money for, uh, but it, in hopes they're never going to need it. Uh, and so when people bought these policies, they weren't buying it in hopes that there was going to be a pandemic that's going to cause the government to shut down their business, but they, they bought it in hopes that they never needed it, but if they need it, it's there. And and so the, the hallmarks of that, of course, are that the policy is always and invariably written by the insurance company. So they're the ones that choose the words, they're the ones that choose the language, they're the ones that choose the exclusions, it, and it's they have superior expertise, they have superior resources, they do it on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, there's never a negotiation, nobody ever sat down with their insurance agent before they purchased the policy and said, uh, by the way, uh, I was looking at page four, paragraph D, and can we talk about the way that's worded? And I'd like to change the wording. We all know that that's laughable. That never happened. Most I actually tried that. I actually tried that once and got exactly the reaction you're talking yeah, about. Right. Nobody ever heard of it. And mm-hmm. by the way, it's the only it's the only type of contract ever in your life where uh, you, you don't sign it. Only they sign it. They electronically sign it and send it to you after you pay a premium. So okay. So we all know that. So why do they exist? The rules. The rules say, well, first of all, the grants of coverage are to be broadly interpreted. Well, it couldn't be any broader than all risk. And and the everything you're looking at in terms of a grant of coverage is to be interpreted broadly in favor of the policyholder. And and by contrast, anything that purports to take away coverage, exclusions are to be interpreted narrowly and becomes very important in the analysis we'll go through today as to when there is an exclusion, you have to look to specifically what it's excluding and is it limited? And if it is limited, as we're going to cover in the the whole government action uh, area, then everything that's not specifically taken away is deemed to be to be covered. So uh, ambiguities use the word ambiguity. There's also a very important uh, rule of construction there, which number one is that all portions of the policy, the entirety of the policy, must be harmonized. It must be capable of being harmonized one provision with the other. And while a particular provision may be on its own clear and unambiguous, when you read it in light of another provision in the same policy elsewhere located that on its on its own may be clear and unambiguous, but read together they're they're in disharmony. You can't they, they don't they don't make sense. And who That's is an it example. Michael who is it 
what you're talking about this, because you're talking about interpreting this policy, <coughs> is the interpretation of the policy, what the coverage is, what the exclusions are, is that a matter for the judge or for the jury, if there's a jury to trial? That is, the interpretation of policy is a matter for the court, for the judge. However, when you get into questions of causation, those would be questions of fact when you're, for example, applying an efficient proximate cause uh, type of analysis. Before you can conclude that, it's a, it's a question of fact. But, but, but the, the interpretation of the policy itself, and that becomes important in terms of the process because that means that it, for those interpretations, if there's an appeal, it is considered by the appellate court purely on the interpretation of the policy as a de novo issue, that is, without regard to any deference to the trial court. Is, is that correct? Exactly right. And Exactly right. And it's applying an objective standard. In other words, that's the other rule of construction that's very important. It doesn't matter what the insurance company believed the language they chose meant, and it frankly doesn't even matter what the insured believed it meant. That would be subjective. The, the, the court has to pretend that it is an insured with, with uh, a lay insured with no particularized training in insurance and what they would understand it to mean. And if it's capable of two or more reasonable interpretations applying an objective standard, then that means it's ambiguous. And, and then if it's ambiguous, step two is you then look to the reasonable expectations of the insured. And, and, and then if it can be resolved, you, you rule in favor of the insured. I'm sorry to be so long-winded, Howard. No, you're not long-winded at all. Everything you're saying is absolutely essential to understand how to handle uh, these cases, uh, and especially when you talk about the objective standard, uh, and is there is there expert testimony? I mean, the court looks at this and has to determine it. Is is there scope here in terms of, of of testimony for experts to give testimony to the court on what meets the standard and what the interpretation should be? I think actually many judges would view expert testimony on that as inappropriate because they might conclude that it's invading the province of, of the court. In other words, I don't need you to tell me, Mr. Expert, <laughs> what it means objectively speaking. And, and you're going to, I think, have different judges react differently to expert testimony and, in that respect. And what about the testimony of the insured? Given that it's objective, is there any relevance to any testimony by the insured as to what the insured understood the policy to mean? No, I believe not. I believe not. I, I think that would be violative of the rule of the objective standard. So that's where that's where it brought us, and it's very very important. Everything you've said here is critical to how lawyers handle this case, these cases, because at the outset you're dealing with what is treated as a legal issue, based on interpretation of the document, which the trial court judge simply by looking at the document and argument and briefing and makes that determination. But on this issue, the uh, the trial court, because it's a pure legal issue determined that way to be decided by the trial court, if there's an appeal on that issue, on a claim that the trial court misinterpreted the policy under the rules of construction, it goes to the three-justice intermediate appellate court as an issue de novo, and if there is a petition 
for hearing before the Supreme Court of California. The Supreme Court of California will consider these issues de novo without deference to how the trial court or the district court of appeal may have ruled. And in dealing then with the interpretation, one of the critical elements there have been so much discussion of is within the all-risk language, often there is stated a requirement for physical loss or damage to, tr- to trigger the business interruption coverage. Ricardo, what, what does that mean, physical loss or damage? And it, it, is that a condition, essentially, to the business interruption coverage? <clears throat> well, the short answer is that in every policy that I've looked at so far, that is a threshold requirement that there must be either physical loss or damage or physical loss of or damage to covered property. And if you think about just historically why that standard exists, prior to all risk policies, when policies were written on a stated peril basis, there really wasn't an issue because pretty much the only perils the insurance companies were covering were those perils that by necessity would cause some physical alteration or damage to property like fire, flood, etc. But when you come up now with this new concept of an all-risk policy where everything is covered that could be a peril that would cause a loss unless specifically excluded, there are perils that do not necessarily trigger uh, physical alteration or damage that nonetheless have a physical loss. And so it's interesting because while having a physical loss or damage is required, In pretty much every policy I've seen, not one policy actually defines what physical loss or damage means. And there's really two lines of authority throughout the country on that issue. And, you know, some of the cases do support the notion that physical loss or damage requires some demonstrative, tangible, structural change to to property. But the trend, I think over the years has been a finding that a physical loss of use or the loss of utility of property, loss of access to property, loss of functional use of property satisfy the requirement of there being a physical loss. Yes, and Ricardo, I think it's important, pardon me, because I think it's so important to set this out for what it means. I mean, this basically, and this is what to say what will be said on on the other side, which is important to consider, is that these policies are property damage policies. They are prop they're, they're they're for property damage and loss. And business interruption is an additional coverage. This is the argument that's made. Business interruption is additional coverage when there has been property damage or loss. So if a building burns down. Uh, for example, and the person was insured, was operating a business in that building, it can no longer, the property can no longer be used. And part of the damages that are then recovered when you've bought business interruption insurance are the available losses for business interruption. The key issue that is put forth in the coronavirus cases is that putting aside for the moment and how it works with various things involving virus and communicable disease, if you simply look at cases where the business can no longer operate, because of the pandemic, either because of the pandemic itself or because there were governmental orders, and that's solely what's happened, is that the business cannot operate, then the strongest defense is being put forth that how is the inability to operate the business, physical damage, 
or loss. And do damage and loss here mean the same thing? But well, that's, that's why exactly. this that's why this is such an important uh, critical issue. Well, and you've hit the nail on the head. It's how the policy sets it forth. Physical loss or damage. It's in the disjunctive. Loss must mean something more than damage because otherwise it wouldn't be required to be in the policy. And if you just look at the dictionary definition of loss, sure it has um, terminology like destruction, ruin, things that you would attribute to damage, but it also has things like deprivation, the act of losing possession. And, and so that's the point. And, and you know, when I, when I listen to some of the arguments that we know the insurance company has made in the past and will likely make here is that, no, it requires physical damage then why don't you just say that in the policy? But aren't there the some policies, says, aren't there some policies, I mean, some policies say physical loss or damage, but are there other policies that say physical loss of or damage to? And the, and, and the use of the word of may make it clearer in those policies that loss is different, but because those policies exist with the word of included, the argument is made that without the word of, which otherwise could appear in the policy, loss or damage is the same. I, th I think you can certainly, um, if you're intellectually honest about it, say that physical loss of or damage to makes it more clear that the loss of use is something different and, and satisfies that requirement. But I still think even if the policy just says physical loss or damage, you still can make that argument credibly because you're still using the difference between a loss and uh, damage. And it's, you know, the cases, most of the cases that have interpreted are under the language of physical loss or damage. And, you know, they, they run the gamut, but um, certainly there's cases, for instance, in the asbestos field um, where the court looked at buildings that had asbestos released in the building. And the structure itself suffered no physical alteration. It's just that asbestos fibers were in the air. And because it was at a certain level that those um, buildings could not be used as they were intended, the courts found that there was a physical loss or damage. But it wasn't just. Structure. But it wasn't just that physical fibers were in the air. Uh, I mean, the reason the fibrous material was in the air is because it was embedded in the structure. It wasn't really that it was embedded in the structure; is that it made the building unusable and and the, and the uh, government authorities said you can't go into the buildings because they're dangerous and you know for instance there's also cases that uh, deal with issues like smoke uh there was a an organ theater that suffered smoke damage and the same thing there there was no physical structural damage but they had to abate the smoke to be able to use the property another case that i read out of um, west virginia had a very interesting analysis there, you had um, three homes at the bottom of a hill, and a bunch of giant stones and boulders rolled down, and two of the homes were physically damaged. One of the homes suffered no physical damage at all. However, the fire department came in and told all three homeowners, you cannot live in these homes because of the danger that additional rocks are going to fall down the hill. So the court, looking at that, found that that there was physical loss or damage to all three homes because those homes could not be used for their intended purpose. I think the reality is there's very little authority that's out there 
interpreting physical loss or damage. And I think this is going to be a target-rich environment for um, judges to come up with rulings, and it'll be interesting how it plays out. But this is going to be a threshold issue, I think, in every well, one of well, these policies. Well, but let's talk about the, the loss of use. I mean, the loss of use, let's take a restaurant, and you are representing uh, one of the best-known restaurants in, in the world, I think. Okay. Uh, so we, we have the loss of use of a restaurant in, in the midst of the pandemic. But that can occur for one of three reasons. I mean, if there were simply the pandemic, for example, and everyone, because of the pandemic, decided they were no longer going to go to restaurants because there is evidence that in crowds and close to people, it's more communicable, you want to avoid the risk. And so people simply don't go to the restaurant because of the pandemic. That's one trigger. A second trigger could be that because of the pandemic, there's an order entered by the government to shelter in place at home. It says nothing about the restaurant. It just says to contain the pandemic, everyone should stay home because people have to stay home. They can't go to the restaurant, though there's no other barrier to going to the restaurant. And the third situation is a specific governmental order that closes the restaurant that says, as we've seen, you're a non-essential business, and therefore you cannot stay open. Aren't those triggers different, even though all may result in loss of use of the property? Yes, they are different. And it's the third one that's been the focal point of the analysis, and that is these policies, many of them have coverage for certain types of governmental orders, civil authorities, etc. And so take, for instance, the example of a restaurant. Um, they were open for business both before the virus came up and even after the virus existed, they were still open for business. But it wasn't until the various governmental orders came in and said, you are a non-essential business and you're shut down, that now you have suffered a loss of use. So I think that's going to be the critical factor in interpreting these policies. There, the cases where the nature of the business has been shut down because of a non-excluded governmental order is where you're going to be able to have the best credible argument to establish there's been a loss of use. Again, there's no physical structural damage, but you have to tether it to what coverages do exist. And in the case of governmental orders, that becomes then the analysis that I think Mike's going to talk about later is where you're um, comparing a non-excluded peril of a governmental order uh, as contributing to a loss versus an excluded peril, such as a virus exclusion. There has to be a further analysis done there. But no question that there's a difference in those three scenarios. And I think it's the third scenario is the area that we're focusing on. And I think it's important to, to make that point in this discussion, because with all the businesses that have been affected, uh, lawyers are being widely consulted by everyone who's been hurt in their business because the business has gone down. And in evaluating these cases, it's important at the outset in terms of counsel making the commitment to undertake the representation to really clarify in their own analysis which triggering event it falls into, simply the pandemic, shelter in place, or closing the business, because that makes a real difference we don't know how the law will finally develop. We don't know how the policies will ultimately be interpreted. But at the outset, that seems to make a real difference in the analysis of risk in either going forward or not. And that's why I think it's important to have 
to have that discussion. You know, you've mentioned civil authority rather than than wait later in our discussion because it comes up in this context. Let's talk about the the the, the uh, civil authority issue and what the yeah. issues are come up. Suppose we have a case. By the way, all the trial court cases I've seen involving restaurants and others all include the claim under the civil authority orders. I have not. There may be. I'm just not familiar with any cases that have filed seeking a broader uh, claim uh, for 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 business interruption. So let's talk about that because that has become such a central issue. What are the yeah. issues involved in, in 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 the civil authority issue? Well, first of all, the civil authority coverage and every policy that I've reviewed is a separate coverage under the policy from the straight-up business interruption coverage. And the common thread that I've seen in these provisions is that what it requires is, is that there be some type of physical damage to the property of another within a certain radius defined in the policy, whether it be within 10 miles or 5 miles, that prevents you from having access to your insured property. And I think, I, and I've seen the policy say that it requires either physical damage to third-party property or physical loss or damage to third-party property. And either way, it requires that damage or loss to be to somebody else's property, and that then prevents you from going into your property. I actually think the importance of that provision is less about the claim under that sub uh, coverage, as opposed to the fact that the policy is recognizing a civil authority as an event that can prevent access. And so it's another way to find a covered peril, or I should say a non-excluded peril, because the policy treats a civil authority as something that can do that. The actual claims, I think, are going to be more, much more challenging under that sub uh, coverage because, you know, you don't really have physical damage to any other property. And I mean, the example I can think of where this coverage would come into play is, say, there was a fire at a neighboring business. And uh, as a result of that fire, the fire department said, you have, uh, you're unable to have access to your property. That would be an easy example where the civil authority coverage would come into play. But but for our purposes, it's not so much about that, as I said, it's more about identifying a peril or an event like a civil authority uh, order that could prevent you from having full use of your property, which is really what we have when you look at the government orders. And the last thing I would say about the civil authority coverage itself, as I said, it's a separate coverage. It is subject usually to a sublimit. Of uh, which are much lower than the normal policy limits, and it usually has a much shorter period of loss. Most of the business interruption policies have a whole year's worth of loss that's available. Civil authority sub-coverage, usually it's 30 to 60 days, so it's much more limited coverage and I think more challenging to obtain in this circumstance, but nonetheless important to the analysis. And what is the importance then of the argument that it is the government order of closure of the business, the non-essential business, uh, that, that, that is a trigger that leads to the loss of use here. That, is that simply evidence of the loss of use or is it a separate item of claim? It's, it's, yeah, you know, 
Howard, that's part of the whole discussion of government action. And the reason it's important to draw the distinction is because, as Ricardo said, civil authority coverage in these policies is a specific grant of a special type of additional coverage. They call it additional coverage. But the point, as Ricardo makes, is it acknowledges that it is, it does constitute a peril. The government authority, which we'll talk about in a little while, actually comes into the analysis as part of the concurrent causation. But, but the real beginning point of that is, if there is a virus exclusion, does that mean that it automatically bars coverage? Because so far, that's what we're seeing across the board, across the industry, all the denials, what we would characterize as a knee-jerk denial that completely, completely ignores the well-established rules of how you go about in the adjustment of a claim like this of determining whether or not there's coverage. But Mike, and Mike, Mike, before we get to the virus exclusion, I want to, I want to clarify or, or the analysis. Putting aside the virus exclusion for one moment and putting aside the limitations of the civil authority additional coverage, what is the relevance and importance in determining insurance company liability under the all risk policy for a government order that has closed the business as a non-essential business? The government action First of all, the, the term government order, we've not yet seen used that way. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, yeah, I, I want to use, let's put it, the, whatever the technical, and I think it's important, you're right to talk okay. te- technically accurate but, here. But we do know there have been executive orders that have essentially closed right. non-essential businesses. Right. And our position on that is, for example, let's take one good example locally. On March 15, 2020, Mayor Garcetti issued an order. And in that order, he defined essential businesses, non-essential businesses, and for a restaurant, for example, using your example, uh, not allowing people to come inside the restaurant to to drink and to dine, uh, effectively shut down by government action that business. And so you have to look to the policy. We know that it's an all-risk policy. And, and uh, one could easily uh, argue, even without the policy language, that governmental action, shutting down a business, is a peril. Well, not only can you just imagine that to be the case, you look to the policy, and there is a section in the exclusion section called government action. And the government action exclusion, the standard form, does exclude government action, but in a very limited way, only to the seizure or destruction of insured property. And the applying the rules of insurance policy interpretation, this property by, by Mayor Garcetti's order was not seized. Nobody came into the restaurant and took out all the equipment, took out the tables. And, and they weren't, they didn't order it destroyed. And so unless the order 
constituted a seizure or destruction of property, applying the well-established rules of policy interpretation, it's not excluded. And if it's not excluded, it's covered. Right. So then now I wanna, then... then I, what I want to do is ask you two things about this. One is a, a very important understanding to set out here, which is that the government action is simply another cause under the policy that causes the loss. And unless it's excluded, it leads to the loss of use and the government uh, and the government language that you've quoted excludes governmental action unless there's a seizure of the property. But once you argue that, some of these cases have also made a takings claim here, a takings clause claim, that the government order essentially functioned as a taking under the Fifth Amendment, uh, and therefore there should be damage for the loss that was caused by the taking. If you're arguing that a seizure is excluded, isn't that language of taking? And does that exclude the takings claim that's included in some complaints? I don't think so, because I think that what it constitutes a loss of use of the property. And for example, as recently, one of the other cases wasn't mentioned yet, as recently as just last year, uh, uh, in the federal court in Los Angeles, Central District Judge Barat, he he found in a policy that said physical loss of or damage to property, in a case where some property was inadvertently mailed to China instead of to a location in the United States, and then eventually the insured said, dispose of it so we don't have any more ch charges against it, that that nonetheless caused, constituted a loss of use of the property. And we would argue, and I think it's completely appropriate, that the mayor's order rendered the property, uh, the insured property, unusable for but, its intended purpose. But there are two things to say, I think, about the road case that I ask you about. It's, it's a 2018 case. It predates. It's not a not a coronavirus pandemic case. And it, of not, yeah. and, it, and it involves the loss of personal property, not of loss or damage to real property. Do you think that makes a difference in how applicable it is to this, uh, to the coronavirus situation? I think that the, whether if it's tangible property, their argument, first of all, is always what? Across the board, the industry says what? It says COVID-19 does not constitute physical loss or damage to property. And and yet, in the very same breath on, on denial letters where they say that, they also invoke the virus exclusion, which on its face says, the standard form ISO form says, we will not pay for loss or damage caused by or resulting from any virus. So, so you can't have it both ways. There'll be no need for that exclusion if you didn't have it's a tacit admission that the virus constitutes loss or damage by it could be caused by a virus but let, well, let's focus then because i think we've reached a point you've mentioned it to talk about the virus exclusion uh it may be a tacit admission but because of the virus exclusion does it exclude then the claim of loss because of the existence of the virus Here's, here's the analysis. First of all, by way of background, that exclusion 
promulgated by the ISO, the Insurance Service Office, which serves the insurance industry, is a standard form exclusion that came into being in 2006 after the SARS problem. And, and again, if you didn't have a peril, you wouldn't need the exclusion. So the fact that they mention it as an exclusion is their effort to take away the coverage. Well, they, the industry we've seen in all these cases across the board, the first question they are asking the insurers is, did you have an employee or any customer who had uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19? Suggesting that in, if you didn't, you don't have the possibility of loss. And then when they answer the question, no, they say, well, you're, you're not covered. But the, the, to understand why it doesn't apply is first to understand the, the notion of concurrent causation. So can I, can I cover that? Oh, absolutely. That's a critical issue. Absolutely. And so you use the term a couple of times today, something about triggering the, the order. And that's really a good, it's a useful, it's a useful word to analyze for a moment. There, the, the two cases that are most important in this area in California are a 1963 California Supreme Court case called Sabella versus Whistler, S-A-B-E-L-L-A versus Whistler. W-I-S-L-E-R. And it's a concurrent causation case. In other words, like most things in life, the Supreme Court recognized that there's a lot of times when a, a loss results from more than one peril coming together or more than one risk coming together to produce the loss. And, th and that's called concurrent causation. And it's really important in this setting to understand that California has two different rules that apply to concurrent causation. One for third party coverages, for liability coverages, and one for first party. And in California, the third party rule was in the Partridge versus State Farm case where the homeowner was sitting in his home filing a hair trigger on a gun and then he takes a friend out hunting in his vehicle in his pickup and he lays the gun on the seat while they're driving around and they go over a bump and because it's a hair trigger the gun goes off and, and injures his passenger and the passenger then sued and the the insured who had filed a hair trigger, tenders it to his homeowner coverage. The homeowner says, there's no coverage because uh, you were using the auto, there's an owned auto exclusion, and therefore the homeowner's policy is off the hook. And the Supreme Court says, no, it doesn't work that way because the negligent conduct of filing the hair trigger took place in the home. And, and that which was done in the home could have independently caused the same type of harm that eventually occurred. In other words, 
a hair trigger is dangerous even if you're not driving around, it could have happened. So it was a far more relaxed rule of causation, partly because of the public policy behind trying to provide more benefits to more people, spread the risk in society, et cetera, and the, the injured third party is not in control of the type of property insured, et cetera. But then for first party, the, the Supreme Court has grappled with this. What happens in a circumstance when you have two or more concurrent causes and one of the causes is excluded and the other one is not? Again, in an all-risk policy, if the question is, is either of the concurrent causes non-excluded? And and in the Sabella versus Wisner, they came up with a, a notion called triggering cause. And they said, you know, if, if the non-excluded peril uh, is, instead of calling it the efficient proximate cause, uh, the triggering cause of the loss is excluded, then there's no, there's no coverage. Well, the, 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 the court in 1989 in Garvey versus State Farm uh, talked about how the fact using the term triggering is dangerous because it, it may lead to bad results. And instead, you have to ask yourself, what is the predominant cause or the efficient proximate cause of the loss? And here in this setting, for example, the coronavirus existed for weeks and months before March 15 shutdown order from the mayor. And certainly uh, the virus was around, but the businesses were open nonetheless. And there, there may have been a reduction of business, there may not. I mean, in the case of uh, these restaurants, they were thriving the day before the order. But now all of a sudden uh, the order comes along and they can't do business, we believe then that causes you to examine whether or not the governmental order itself is excluded, and if not, could be viewed as the efficient proximate cause. Let me ask, as we talk about these things, there's one thing I want to talk about, uh, even as we're talking about the larger set of issues uh, and that is all the analysis that you've done has been in the context of coverage issues. And the, but the insurance companies have a range of responsibilities, not just for coverage, but a response duty to defend, for example. Is there any doubt? I, I don't ask the question to ask it rhetorically. I just want to know how you're thinking about this. Is there any doubt or risk in your mind that about the duty to defend here or will simply tendering and and making a claim uh, bring to the fore the insurance company's duty to, to defend these things? Well, typically, of course, if you're dealing with the, the third-party liability coverages under the policy, which are completely separate inquiry, yeah. the first threshold question is, is someone suing the insured for bodily injury or property damage? And, and if someone sues them for saying, you know, whatever, I came into your location and you didn't have proper uh, 
uh, cleanliness or you weren't taking care of things properly and I became infected, to me, there's no question, but there's a a duty to defend in that setting. But these are first-party cases. It's different. How does it function in first-party cases? Completely different. This this first-party analysis is completely different. Yeah. That's an important point, I think, because people always, and I just wanted to, to clarify that, always talk about the burden that will be placed because of the duty to defend. But in pure first-party cases, there are different level of risks and costs and involvement right. than there are in third-party cases, uh, which, right, arise, right. which arise yeah. in the liability context. Uh, right. What advice, we, we've gone over the major issues here, uh, what advice do you give to counsel considering these cases? If a lawyer were to call you, for example, not may call to be co-counsel, may ask you to be involved, but just to say, Mike or Ricardo, I'm considering this, I've got a potential client here, you're often called in discussions, plaintiff's counsel talk a great deal among themselves. What advice would you give to lawyers considering representing plaintiff's policyholders in these cases in terms of going forward? Well, this is Ricardo. I think the the first bit of advice I would give is read the policy. You cannot talk in generalities about each case because I've been doing nothing but reading these policies since um, the pandemic uh, broke. And the reality is there's nuances on every one of them that are a little bit different. And it makes a big difference in the overall analysis. So you have to start with making sure you read the policy carefully from cover to cover. The other thing is to, if, if you, there is a virus exclusion, um, that's not the end of the inquiry. You still have to then compare it with other coverages and whether there's a concurrent cause analysis comparing a virus exclusion with a government action non-excluded peril, that analysis has to be done. Another thing is there's different types of virus exclusions. For instance, I just looked at one two days ago. You you know, the standard ISO virus exclusion says there's no coverage for any claim, you know, arising out of a virus. It's it's written broadly. But I saw one that had an exclusion not for virus per se, but for contamination. And contamination was defined to include the actual presence of a virus. Now, that's an exclusion where an insurance company is going to have the burden of proving that there was actual presence of a virus at a location to establish the exclusion. So, again, the point is, without getting too far in the weeds, is every one of these policies is somewhat different, and you have to make sure that you base your analysis on the four corners of the policy that you have. Thank you, and and I want to thank Mike Bedard and Ricardo Echeverria. Uh, What we've done here is, I think, gotten ablest counsel uh, to talk about the issues in terms of handling these cases. Uh, We've done this in this hour. We're going to have another hour, as I mentioned, on the defense side as well. As you listen to these, you know there's a great deal of other material that's available. This is one of the most written about and analyzed things at various levels, and it's right at the beginning, so getting great analysis at the beginning is so important. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, there's a great deal been written in the journal, some of it by our guests today as well as many other articles on this issue, Business Interruption. As a subscriber, you have access not just to the daily, the ones that come out on a daily basis, but to the entire archive. There's a search function on the site. You can search for all the material that's been written. You can bookmark it. You can save it for further reading. And it really is a treasure trove 
of practical wisdom and general wisdom on how to handle cases and what the laws are here. If you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal, and you may have been watching this outside the paywall on dailyjournal.com, where it is distributed, and you wish to become a subscriber, at dailyjournal.com, there is the button in the upper right-hand corner, subscribe, that you can link to that, obtain a subscription, and have access to all the material that's available on the Daily Journal website. I want to thank you for listening, but I especially want to thank Michael Bedart and Ricardo Echeverria for sharing their wisdom here. You have been so much a part of insurance law in the state of California and your efforts in court and in education and in sharing your perspective and understanding here is going to have a decisive effect and an important effect on the way this law develops in California. Thank you both for being with us and thanks to those who are listening for taking the time to listen to this podcast, The Daily Journal has been very pleased to bring it to you. Thank you.